You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Hi, and welcome to The Compass, the podcast documenting the struggles of life as an artist. I'm Leah Walsh. Before we get started, I just wanted to remind you that this Sunday, November 6th at 7 p.m. is the first live episode taping of The Compass. You can get all the information on The Compass Podcast Facebook page. But if you're in New York, please come join us. My guests are going to be my husband, actor Frankie J. Alvarez, and actress and singer-songwriter Laura Gratmans. We're very excited, and we're going to have a lot of fun. Uh, If you're not in New York City or you can't make it, the episode will be online to listen to next Friday, November 11th. My guest today is Carl Kensler. Carl is a wonderful actor, writer, director, and teacher. He and I met about a dozen years ago at the Chautauqua Summer Theater Program. He came to teach us a theater games class uh, at that time when I was still in college. Since then, our shared orbits of both being University of Evansville alumni and New York City actors have kept us in touch over the years. I really admire his work, his generosity as an artist, the contagious energy he brings into a room, and I just love sitting down and talking with him about these big life questions. If you have a moment this week to give The Compass a rating or review in iTunes, please do. It will help others to find the podcast. I hope you enjoy the 52nd episode of the compass. So why did you try to keep from going to the dark side? <laughs> um I uh, what do I do to keep from going to the dark side? I it's interesting. I actually try to, in a healthy way, embrace the dark side. Um, It's so easy, I feel, in this business to separate myself from others. It can be a very lonely uh, experience, uh, especially when an actor is not working, an artist is not working. Um, but recently I've been really interested in this idea of uh, sitting with it and I don't, it may just be that, uh, I've gotten older, but, uh, you know, we're, we're closing, I'm, I'm doing Fiddler on the Roof right now and we, we close at the end of December and I'm watching how everyone is responding to this closing notice and it's really interesting that um, a lot of the younger people in the cast are, have immediately launched into, where's my next job? What am I doing? They're climbing a ladder. They're finding that next job. And I feel that as, I, as I've gotten older, it's less about finding that next job. And it's such a familiar place to be out of work when you're a freelancer, you know? And there's something, I always get a bit of a rush when I'm out of work. That first month or so, I feel just invincible. Like, I can do anything. I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll take that. I'll do that. I'll, I can do anything. I could book any job. And it doesn't always work that way. But I certainly feel that I, as I've gotten older, I have relished the idea of sitting with that rush of excitement, that mixture of dread, anxiety, and uh, possibility. And I guess that's, that's really, 
I, that's what I mean by sitting with the dark side um, in terms of, of unemployment, in terms of being between yeah. jobs. Yeah, what, what is the dark side for you in general? I would say for me, the dark side is isolation. Um, there is a... I talked about that loneliness. There is a, um, I, it's funny, when I was a kid, I was a very, very shy kid. And um, I grew up in a single parent household. And um, do you have brothers and sisters? I do, I do. I have an older brother, uh, he's three years older, and a sister who's 10 years older. Um, and I was always kind of a dreamy kid. I was a very uh, imaginative kid. I loved storytelling, I loved old movies, all that stuff. Uh, but I lived in my room a lot, and I lived in my head a lot, uh, lived in my imagination. And I think that came out of, uh, there was uh, addiction in my household growing up, and there are mental health issues in my family, depression, bipolar, that kind of stuff. And I think my way of coping with that was to have this incredibly rich life inside my head. And I, I carry it with me even now. As, as an adult, I'm, um, I'm very much an introvert. But as an actor, I also can sort of turn that thing on. So I think it's a bit deceptive sometimes when I'm sort of on. But I'm actually, I'm really, sh I'm very shy. And when I'm sort of sitting with that shyness and sitting with that isolation, that's when I go to the dark place that is really challenging. Um, that sense of, I'm, I'm different. My struggle is different from yours, Leah. My struggle is different from everyone's, you know? Um, which is why finding this podcast, um, going out with friends, you know, they always say like, oh, if you're unemployed, just go meet a bunch of other actors. You're going to hear the same story from like a dozen people. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and there's this, there's a kinship when, when we hear it from, uh, from another. Um, and that, I guess to go back to the original question, that is how I, when I am my best self, that is how I embrace that darkness, is I, I realize that there is a, a kinship among all of us, which is interesting. I, you know, I was, um, I was talking to a, a former student of mine about why we act, and he said, oh, I, I just love being in those worlds. And uh, I felt very much the same way. I, I, it was something that I immediately identified with. That I, I've, I know a lot of actors who sort of relish the sense of community. And I love that, but I think I'm a bit dysfunctional or broken or shy. And it's hard for me to sort of reach out like that. But what I truly, truly love is going into those, getting lost in those worlds, that world of story. And there is a, there's a connection there that I, I find is a, a safer, more structured connection. Mm -hmm. And maybe that is uh, what drew me to it in the first place, is uh, growing up in, a, in a, an environment that wasn't safe. I could enter into someone else's narrative, have a connection with another human being that was true and honest and deep and and yet there was a structure to it that made it safer yeah you know i know that's something when i'm doing a show that i really love is like once you start it mm -hmm. like those plays where if you don't have a lot of downtime in it and it's like well once we start it's just going to keep going until it's over yeah and to ride out that story yeah it's something i just love so much i don't know if it is that safety of like i can't think about anything else right now and it, the inevitable is going to happen and you're just in that story for the next two hours it's something i really miss when i'm not doing a play 
Yeah, it's almost like there's a it, there's a purity to it that I, I don't know if it's this way for you, but are, are, do you does your brain? I think my issue is that my brain is constantly teeming with distraction, with yeah. um, doubt, insecurity, worry. worry, and so when I am purely engaged in my work, I just sit across from someone and we play a scene and right. there's that connection and all of the rest of it can fall away. And especially, like, I assume it was this way for you with Peter and the Starcatcher, like a show like that where it's like ensemble and you're constantly having to go from like one thing to another and it's just, you don't have a chance to... You don't, it's interesting, it's interesting, but in a very, no, no, it's in, in a very different way. Uh, Starcatcher was interesting because people would constantly come to that show and they would say, oh, you guys must have so much fun. It just looks, it looks so much fun. It's a celebration (laughs) of theater and acting and, but it was a kind of boot camp and you, uh, apart from, you know, Celia and Christian and Adam, there's not a lot of downtime to sit in a scene. A lot of those scenes are you're booking through it, and there's a lot of technical stuff. Uh, Alex and Roger's direction was very precise. It was a lot of, I wouldn't say choreography, but it was that specific. And so it was a more physically taxing experience. Um, but mentally. yes, then mentally or emotionally. So the connections that were made were. They were still fun, but it was actor to actor as opposed to character to character. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So um, I could sit across the stage and, and, you know, turn a section of rope into a rolling ocean and look across at Greg Hildreth and we would be smiling <laughs> going, oh my God, look what we're doing. But it, it wasn't, uh, it wouldn't be like sitting across from you and doing you know, Benedict and Beatrice. Um, uh but that it was thrilling because it was athletic, and uh, Stephen Hoggett's choreography is just—I mean, what he does is so amazing of creating this union out of disparate performers, <laughs> and and uh, the mechanics of it are just uh, breathtaking. I think in in everything he does. Where are you from? Uh, I grew up in Indiana. In, in Indiana. Mm-hmm. I grew up in Indianapolis. And then you went to I did. I went to the University of Evansville. And then did you come right to NYU? I took a year off, and I got my equity card at uh, Indiana Repertory Theater. Yes. Yeah. And I, I've done a Christmas Carol there. Have you? In the past. I did the first uh, year of that. Oh, yeah. They created an upper stage company of young local actors. Yeah. Yeah, I do. I love that theater, and I think it's a theater. it is. But that's where I it was my first real professional union yeah. uh, gig, and then I came to NYU. And I, the reason I took the year off after college was um, <laughs> I, I used to have this very severe, uh, like Bruce Springsteen underbite, like very, very, very. Uh, protruding lower jaw and I had to have surgery before I went to graduate school uh, I, I guess the the way it was explained to me is that your upper jaw grows only because your lower jaw presses against it and sort of compels it to continue growing and my lower jaw was growing down and out so the upper jaw was not following suit so um just to get did you audition? I did audition and then I asked them if I could defer for oh, a year. Okay. Um, and so when I showed up to NYU, I was about four weeks out of surgery oh where they had broken my lower jaw and oh. cut a section out of oh. it. Then they broke my upper jaw and took a bone graft out of the right side of my pelvis and built cheekbones for me and moved my upper jaw forward do you have ptsd from this no but i if you look at an x-ray of my head you can still see screws in oh my, my skull um it's pretty awesome and then you moved to new york city i moved to new york and i had had my jaw my jaw had been wired shut for like two weeks uh, no actually it was almost four weeks that it was wired shut and i had lost something ridiculous like 20 pounds so 
I showed up to New York. I was so skinny. My face was still so swollen that if I brought my hand towards my nose, I would touch my lips before I touched my nose. And I showed up at NYU and I basically said to Deborah Hecht, uh, uh, speech teacher there, I was like, I, I need help learning to speak again. Um, oh, this, oh, this is so interesting. I was just, I was just listening this morning to, um, uh, do you know Stephen Fry? Yes. Yeah, he, he has this uh, incredible uh, uh, episode on uh, iTunes. It's a podcast episode where it's, I think it's called Word World or something like that. He's talking at an Apple store about language. And um, he, he talks about how the human mouth, the, the tongue has such perfect memory. Your, your mouth moves so specifically and your tongue is all over the place in there. If you have the tiniest obstruction, something in your teeth, a cracked tooth, uh, like a, a swelling somewhere, it really screws everything up, right? Like when you just, if you just have a canker sore on the yeah. tip of your tongue, it, it grossly affects the way you talk. <laughs> and so I had that like times a thousand. Um, I had terrible jaw tension. And it, it was a really interesting way to introduce myself to New York. Um, because I'd come from, I was kind of a big fish in a small pond at uh, the University of Evansville. I was a little bit cocky, full of myself. Mm -hmm. And then smash, I just, my jaw gets busted. I'm suddenly skinny with a head like a lollipop and I show up. <laughs> <laughs> and I had to kind of learn it all over again. And um, I think that's where I really sort of uh, developed this appreciation for language, for the spoken word. I mean, as an actor, as a college student, I had always been interested in storytelling and the, the spoken word and stuff, but I was coming at it from a more emotional place, you know what I mean? And, uh, and then I got to NYU and I had this technical training where I realized what a tremendous gift language is. Um... I mean, it's kind of a miracle that you and I can sit across from each other and even have an inkling of what the other one is thinking, right? Um, well, and also, too, because when everyone starts grad school, you don't realize, <clears throat> excuse me, you don't realize, like, how much you need to start from the beginning and learn. Mm -hmm. I, and I feel like they, I remember our speech teacher being like, you're saying... Ben should be Ben. Like something had been. Yeah. I left my. I, I had been at the store and it's like, no, it's, it's Ben. Like, oh, I, my whole life I thought it, I'm from Michigan. I, I said it that way. I, <laughs> but you don't realize. And you came in, it, and maybe it was helpful to you that you came in knowing that you needed to start from the beginning. Yeah, I, I guess it was. I mean, it was also incredibly. Um, I felt incredibly vulnerable. I guess maybe it was maybe it was easier because I sort of had an excuse that like ah look at this guy's mouth. His defenses are down already. Yeah, yeah, and and you're right. Everyone was sort of going through it. You 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 reach that level of training in anything, and you basically show up to be informed. <laughs> um, but to realize like what you can achieve with hard work too. Yes. Like how amazing language is, but also what you can really do if you focus and devote yourself to the intricacies of what your tongue does. Yeah, yeah. And I guess, I mean, I thought to go back to uh, this notion of the dark side, and again, it's interesting that isolation to me is so much the culprit of where that comes from. That feeling of uh, not being plugged into the rest of your community or the rest of humanity um, is... It has so much to do with language and communication. And um, I mean, whatever that language is, it can be spoken word, it can be the language of touch, it can be um, anything. But, but it is about finding that connection to your group, your people, your tribe, you know? Do you feel a differently about the isolation since having children? just occurred to me just because then I mean I know it's a different kind of relationship but you're just constantly around you know, yeah it's it's in yeah uh it is different 
you know, it's we. Still a mental, a mental isolation. It is. I think time-wise, there's less time to reflect on it. I think I said when I showed up that uh, I was nervous when I when we first talked about doing this, and. I think the reason why is that I, I, I listened to some of the episodes and I thought, oh, how do, I, how do I deal with the dark side? And I realized I haven't really given it much thought in the last five years because five years ago I had my first child. And there is something to do... Having an unfettered life means that I can reflect on it a bit more. Uh, I'm at a point in my life where I, I, I am a spouse, I am a father, I am uh, a child to uh, an aging parent who requires more attention than, uh, than was required previously. And as a result, I have very, very little time to consider my own, I won't say needs, but my own desires. And I'm surrounded a lot at work by, by uh, younger artists who do have much more freedom in their time and their energies to devote to projects. And I find that as I get older, I have to be a bit more selective about where I want to put my time and energy. Mm-hmm. Um, part of that is responsibility. Part of that is I'm responsible to my family, my my wife, my kids. But a big part of it is also that, (laughs) I don't know, man, what we do can't compare to watching a human being come into existence. I, it's fucking awesome. (laughs) I I remember we, we got pregnant, uh, with my daughter when we were doing Peter and the Starcatcher down at, at New York Theatre Workshop. And Alex Timbers said to me, and this is just when, like, Timbers was just blowing up. Like, he was, and he was like, hey, man, explain to me what it is. You're so excited about being a dad. Explain to me what that is. And I started to tell him, I said, I said, it just is really thrilling to just see these little sonograms and realize that, like, a human is starting here. And I, I said, it kind of gives the lie to everything we do in the theater. Like, like it's real what we do, but it's so not as real as the real real, you know? And, um, and as I was saying it to him, he was, he was like, yeah, yeah, he was kind of engaged. But he also was kind of like his eyes sort of wandered off. And I was like, of course, you, you're, not, you're not there. You're, and you shouldn't be there because you're about to explode. And like, you know, he's... Um, yeah, yeah. And, but I did realize soon after that, when my daughter was born, I, I, I noticed that as, as an actor, as a writer, as a teacher, um, I was constantly going to her for examples mm-hmm. because she's a person, but she's, right now she's kind of a person in primary colors. She's five. So there's more shading that's getting on her as she gets older. But right now it's kind of, uh, it's kind of easy to sort out what she's on about, you know? Um, emotionally, she's, when she goes through something, it's with the big brush. Um, she's a terrible liar because she's five, you know? <laughs> she's, um, but she's also so front-footed about it in the same way that she's front-footed about when she says, you know, I love you infinity and miles. Which makes perfect sense. Um, But that is something that, as far as the dark side, I'm thrilled to spend time with her, to spend time with my son, to spend time with my family. Um, And then there are times when I have such a longing for the other creativity. You know what I mean? Yeah. I guess that 
depends on the, the little maintenance things you do for yourself along the way, whether you're letting something build up, or you're like, no, I'm actually dealing with it in a good way and healthy. And You know, and I, I don't know, I mean, because here, here's what I will say is... Um, no, it makes total sense, and and I think it's a question of. Because um, I've heard other parents say in a great way where I'm like, I want that. Where like, oh well, since I had my kid, the stress of auditioning, all of these other things, they just don't matter as much. I just go in, I do it, and then I get back to, to keeping this tiny human alive. That is absolutely true. Which sounds wonderful. It does because <laughs> because you kind of go, yeah, whatever. All yeah. right, fine. I, I, I all of the stress I put myself through around auditioning. Yeah. Yeah, there's a. Um, uh, I was told once this wonderful thing that before you have children, if you don't have children, ninety percent of your life is about yourself, and ten percent is about other human beings. So when you go to that soup kitchen and you ladle up the soup, it's awesome, and it's ten percent of your life. Why? When you have children, ninety percent of your life is about other people, and ten percent is about yourself, and it's. Uh, it doesn't feel as glorious to give to the others because you're just constantly giving. But there are flashes of uh, bliss where you you just realize that it's all worth it. And the 10% of time that you have for yourself, the 10% of time that I have for myself, it goes back to the thing. I have to be just a bit more selective. I can't do every reading can't commit myself to projects that don't make me money unless I'm truly passionate about them. You know, I, we, um, I worked with a couple of, uh, friends from U of E college friends, uh, Chris Gerson and Carrie Preston and, uh, a friend of ours, Lynn Rosen, the playwright Lynn Rosen. And we created this online series called Darwin, yes. Darwin, the series. And we've been working on that for like four years. We, it was truly a labor of love, and it was a ton of time that we spent, and a good portion of our own money, and raising money, and but we did it, and it's a beautiful story, and it's funny, and we've got just some tremendous actors involved, and the writing is wonderful. Lynn's writing is so spiky and funny and weird, and um, and Carrie's direction is just beautiful, and. It's something that I'm so proud of because it's something that I wanted to do. And, you know, and as actors, we spend so much time being interpretive artists and waiting to be told that we can, you know what, you can do this. Go ahead. Go ahead and do this now. Um, There's something. You get to do this. Yeah. Yeah. Aren't you lucky? What were you guys going through when you came up with the idea when you started working? <laughs> um, and actually, it's funny. We we uh, it's we started with a completely different idea that was going to require a lot more money and stuff. And we had the name already, Darwin the series, and and then we realized it was just too big. We weren't going to be able to do it. And I said, oh, I had a really interesting idea about. Um, I I I like the idea of the public versus private. Um, <laughs> because I'm so much like that. I, I very often project an image out into the world that I'm cool, everything's fine, I'm good, and inside I am a fucking train wreck. Yeah. <laughs> Just desperately trying to keep it together, right? And um, <laughs> so we, uh, I said, we, what if we have a guy who's, who is that and is in a position of authority? He's a therapist or a life coach or something. And we hit on that idea and... Uh, um, and I said he should have a client who seems like a train wreck, but is actually just a really solid, decent, good person, you know? Um, and we brought Lynn into it, and the three of us just sort of brainstormed on it. We wanted uh, there to be a, um, a wife involved, because we, we were also... I was a new parent, Lynn had two kids, and we thought it was interesting to write a story about... So, so much of the online stuff is about people in their 20s, and we thought it would be interesting if we wrote about another stage of life. And um, so Celia Keenan-Bolger came in and she played uh, Leo's wife, Charlie. And, but the, the impetus for that actually came from the fact that Chris Gerson and I met in college. And um, we were, I was dating um, someone 
and uh, Chris came in and, and uh, sort of there was a bit of a love triangle thing for a while. We sort of argued over the same girl. And um, that became the impetus for sort of the, the love triangle tension in it. And, um, uh, but but also it, you just wanted to work together. Yeah, I'm, yeah. Chris and I had been talking about doing something. We used to shoot videos with a giant VHS brick of a camera in, <laughs> in college. And um, Carrie had a, a production company with a friend from Juilliard, and she'd already uh, produced and directed a few films, and she wanted to do something where she didn't produce. So we sort of pulled it all together. And, and it, it's also that, that sense of community. I mean, I'm, I'm such a weird, awkward nine-year-old inside that um, to get a chance to work shorthand with, with people that I love and respect is just awesome. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I think that's maybe something that we we all long for. It's something that, you know, the notion of being part of a rep company or being in a graduate school or a college setting where you have people that you work with and you can you can get to a place a lot quicker because you know them. You trust each other, so you can get in there really deep, right? Um, that that is where that came from. And that made producing work that you had to do worth it yes yeah i mean it's also it's also interesting to sort of find out where your skill sets may lie we didn't uh i'd never produced anything before and uh but we found oh i'm good at this i'll do this part um are you guys more? We are. We're working on a, you know, it's really interesting. It's so fast moving. New media <laughs> is so fast moving. When we started writing the scripts for this, we were going to write 22 minute episodes like TV, right? Right. By the time we were shooting, we had to chop those 22 minute scripts up into, we were shooting for something around five or six minutes a piece. By the time we released it, People were not wanting to watch anything more than a couple minutes long. And now it's almost impossible to get people to watch anything that's over a minute long because we now watch it on our phones. Mm -hmm. So people are watching it while they walk or while they're on the subway or sitting at a cafe. And so we're doing a, um, a new season that is, we're trying to do one minute episodes. The new thing is like Instagram. Yeah. Yeah, but what we want to do, the, the, the clever thing that, I, I, that I'm very excited about is the, story, the pieces that we're fitting into the puzzle fit in around the existing narrative. So oh, cool. it's like a minute with one character who's off camera during another scene. It's what's happening to them while that's happening. That's so that hopefully you can watch that and go, and they may intersect with something else and you'll go, oh, let me go back and watch awesome. that. Um, I really loved, I haven't watched the entire series yet, but I really love the music. Oh, thanks. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Um, we pulled a lot. We, we bought rights for a lot of stuff, but we also used um, a guy named Alex Savronsky who, who wrote stuff for the uh, finale. He does a lot of... Uh, he writes a lot of music for classical theater, for Shakespeare plays and stuff. Did you ever see that series, short-lived series, Pushing Daisies? Yes. It kind of reminded me of the use of music in that, like where it's kind of this fantastical fantastical soundtrack for parts of the story. Yeah, I, I, I really love that kind and of I stuff. I like the dual world, like, mm-hmm. like public. Yeah, I, it, it also, it, I think we were also kind of, without being derivative, we were we were drawing from things like Wes Anderson and uh, Junet and Caro, the guys who did Amelie and yeah, yeah, yeah. City of Lost Children. That I, I like that, um, I mean, I just sort of the way I grew up. I, I love the sort of melancholy underbelly. I really, I really like, it gives a sort of weight to even the silliest stuff when it comes from a kind of, um, a desperate hunger, you know, a desperate need. And, um, yeah, I really, I really like that kind of stuff. So I think that's what we were kind of going for was a, a person who's kind of imploding and working so, so, so hard to not let you see that, um, which is, you know, a very personal story for me. <laughs> um, can I ask you about teaching? Is, is it still a big part of your life? And do you find that it fuels you artistically or is it more of a, you know, I need a side hustle and... It's I not, you know, know, it started as a side hustle. It's funny. I, um... Because that's how I first met you. 
teach yeah. class. Yeah. I, I love it so much. And I get, um, I get a deep satisfaction from it that I don't even get from acting. Which I think I, I was a little late to acknowledge. I think going back to that thing that when I was younger, I was so hungry to do whatever, to be successful in some way as an actor. As a, and I remember uh, I, was, uh, I was offered a, a job to teach at NYU, grad acting. And I didn't want to do it. I did not want to do it because I felt that it would be a failure on my part to take that on. But once I started to do it, I realized that it became like a practice, like a meditation practice for me. And it kept me so honest as an actor. Because if you, if I'm going to do that and teach people how to do that thing, I better damn well be doing it myself. Um, and I've always thought that that, that what... I teach isn't necessarily theater or an acting class, but I, I, uh, um, I, my love for this came from a guy who taught me, a guy named Paul Walker, who was uh, just an incredible teacher and a human being and an actor. And um, he taught me theater games at NYU and, uh, and oh, I don't know how deep I want to go into this. Um, I lived around the corner from him, and uh, the first year that I was at NYU, he was diagnosed with AIDS. This was 91, okay? So it's kind of the height of it. And, um, and he lived for three full-blown years with full-blown AIDS. And uh, my third year, final year at NYU, he was directing... Um, play a Dario Faux farce called We Won't Pay, We Won't Pay. Do you know it? Yeah, it's, oh, it's so funny. It's so good. Mm. Talk about desperate hunger. It's like, um, it's, it's like the Honeymooners, an Italian version of the Honeymooners, except they're so poor and so hungry that they're willing to do anything to get by. And they are sort of held in place by this one actor who plays all these characters of authority, a policeman, a carabinieri. Um, and he keeps coming in and, and sort of holding them down and, and they have to... But it, it's just wicked, wicked farce and physically just so athletic and fun and the language is really chewy. And um, so Paul was directing this and uh, my third year and... I mean, the guy had been living... I lived around the corner from him, and uh, a friend and I used to go over to his house and help him put in his medicine at night. And it made him desperately sick. Like, he, he would get... Phys I think it was AZT. He would get physically, physically, violently ill. But he lived by this principle of um, accepting your given circumstances <laughs> and leaning into it. And so I think more than any other experience I've had in my life, it was such, it was, it moved me so profoundly. And this is not to take anything away from incredible teachers that I've had. Um, but this guy lived it, you know, like a hundred percent. And he was a good friend and he was an amazing teacher. And, um, and the things that he taught and what he sort of got out of people in class, which it wasn't so much acting training. It was like just teaching you to be a better human, you know, to be present and to be engaged and interested and curious, um, and fearless. So, um, <laughs> And now that's what I what I like to. I mean, certain, there's a lot of us who sort of came through his teaching and and are teaching, but in very different ways. Uh, uh, um, Frank Deal, who teaches at Juilliard, Dan Cordell, Antoinette Lavecchia, Kevin Isola, Daniel Scrostad, myself. There's a lot of people, and we all bring a different sort of take to it. But the thing that I've always really, really 
felt is that it is about teaching us to just be present and curious and not judgmental. So when I teach, when I teach acting, when I teach games, there's a lot of, a lot of that, a lot of, I, I work very hard to try to confound myself and everyone in the room and say, you have this preconceived notion about this. Well, what if it's the other? What if it's the other thing? What if it's not that? And uh, I, I find very often when we step out of our comfort zone, it's when we're doing our best work as artists. Um, uh, <laughs> so I, I love it. I haven't been doing it much recently because of the kids, but um, I was just saying recently that I, I, I'm desperate to get back into it because uh, it gives me such great pleasure. And talk about combating the dark side. It's, a, um, it's an incredible way to plug into a shared humanity, you know? Um, and enjoy, too. I often think about, we had clown class at Juilliard, I think just for a semester, and uh -huh. I really wish that we had had it. I learned more from that class than from a lot of my other training. Like The same thing as, as with games. It's like, it really makes you connect with those people in that room mm -hmm. in a different way. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You can't be hiding. You just have to be open and go and the, the joy and the innocence that can be in that. Yeah, there's a lightness to it that um, that is, um, I also think is, I find when I teach also, uh, it's very common that um, young actors will mistake hard work for um, presence. And, and very often it's the exact opposite that is required. It's just showing up. That's it. And, um, <laughs> and it's the hardest thing in the world to just show up and not have an agenda, right? I know how to do hard work. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. And then you say, like, all you got to do is show up. And they go, all right, I'm going to show up. <laughs> and they show up with such ferocity that... I think it's because so much else is out of our control. So yeah. what else can you do except I'm going to do as much homework as I can. I'm going to memorize these lines until they're dead. Like, yeah. otherwise... Yeah, you really do have to embrace that, um, that spontaneity and that unknown, because otherwise you're like, well, I don't have control over anything else, so I should be doing this. Yeah. I, you know, though, it, it's, it's funny because it is, um, there is a, once the rest of life starts to grab onto you and distract you, it goes back to the thing we were saying earlier about having other responsibilities. Yeah. I mean, honestly, that's the, that's the other thing I would say is like to combat the dark side, like get involved in something else. Yeah. I, I, when I am involved in other things, things for my kids, things for my community, things with my neighbors, I, I just, I'm not so twee or precious about my work. And holy hell, it's so much better. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah, so there, there is, and that, I think that's just inevitable, you know? It's just inevitable that the... the more time you spend on the planet, the more you get dinged up and knocked around and... And you just, it's like anything, you know, like a little, a little tree starts to grow and it's just a little shoot that's coming up. But the more it grows, those roots stretch out, other things grab onto it. And it's you're just, you're connected to other stuff. And you, you can't be your, you can't be your gypsy artist self for an, I mean, you can, you can, but, I, but for the most part, the longer you show up in the world, the more, uh, life gets its hooks into you, you know? And there's such a sweet release in that. Um, has there ever been a time when you thought about leaving New York or being based somewhere else? Uh, yeah, often, actually. I think it's a very common um, actor fantasy of like, well, hey, what would we do? What, what would I do if I chucked all this? Um, we, my wife and I have talked about it. Because your, your wife is not. She's not, no, my, my wife is, uh, she's an accountant and, uh, she's also Polish. She was born in Poland and she's incredible. Her learning curve for how to be with a working artist is, um, 
she's been such a good student about it. <laughs> um, and I know I'm a challenge. I know it. I know I am. And I apologize for it. Um, but she's, we've talked about, she's been very understanding about saying, well, of course you have to be someplace where you can do your work. And then I go into sort of dramatic flights of fancy about like, well, I don't need, I can do my work anywhere. And it's not, it's just not true. I mean, I, I, I could, but it would be different work. And I like where we are. I, I think about leaving, but I also know that, um, at this point in my life, I'm invested here. And for now, I like it here. I like it. I, um, I was thinking this morning about as we get older, as I get older, there are certain doors that are closing. You know, there are doors and roles that I just won't play. And while it would be lovely to think that um, you can always change your life 100%, you can just chuck it all into, there, maybe it's the German side of me, maybe it's the Midwesterner in me, but I'm like, no, nope, there comes a point where uh, I do. I do have a responsibility as a human on the planet to the people that I've chosen, you know, and the people I've made. <laughs> so uh, the challenge for me is not, uh, the choice is not to leave New York, but the choice is to find that joy and creativity in what I am doing. And as an actor, I, I sort of think about the, um, it's in uh, Camus' Stranger, where he talks about likening prison to being in uh, trapped in a tree trunk and only being able to look up and see a patch of sky. And, and he says, uh, it just sounds horrible, but eventually I'd adapt. <laughs> and I would find the, uh, the, the clouds yeah. passing beautiful. That does sound like living in New York City. <laughs> <laughs> it totally does. Totally does. Well, if you even get I that view. It's normal, but to someone else, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but I, I, I really think um, it, oh, it's taken a while to get to this, Leah, but I so want to talk about this. It really comes down to the story we choose, you know? Um, I can look at my life in New York and say, like, oh, you know, I didn't get to play Hamlet. Oh, I didn't get to... <laughs> but the reality is I have been, uh, I've been doing this show. I've been doing Fiddler on the Roof for the last year. I play the constable, who's the bad guy. I don't sing or dance, but I get this wonderful opportunity. I get about probably 20, 25 minutes a night where I have these one-on-one -on -one scenes with Danny Burstein, who plays Tevya, and it is so fun. Those 25 minutes a day are so much fun because he is, and I'll tell you what, it, he is so game. And we have been allowed to have a pretty broad path. So every night, it, our relationship is very, very different. And it's always surprising. And it's always fun. And we find the jazz in and around that melody line that we have to play to mm -hmm. tell the story. Um, and we've been doing it for a year. And part of that job is a grind. But man, those 25 minutes every night are creatively so fulfilling and that's that's what I'm talking about that's the you may be trapped in a tree trunk but if you're paying attention if I pay attention I'm finding that blue sky I'm finding those clouds and um uh, uh do you do you know a, a poet named John O'Donohue do you know him He's, uh, he's an Irish, he, he died I think like maybe 10 years ago but he's an Irish poet and philosopher um and he talks a lot about beauty in the world and how we, we have a choice. Um, he said, you have a choice when you walk out your door. You have to choose whether or not you're walking out into a dead landscape or whether you're walking into a vibrant place filled with beauty. And it's so true, especially when you live in a place like New York City. It's very easy to see nothing but the garbage and the puddles and the despair and the misery. But if you're paying attention, you also 
hear that cricket every night in the construction site as I leave the theater. There's a cricket that hangs out. And for the last like five days, I stop and I listen to him at like 11 o'clock at night and he's there. I don't know what the lifespan is of a cricket, but he's been going at it. And I'm like, there's a cricket in the middle of New York City. That's like a kid's story. It's amazing. Um, but he talks a lot about that, about true beauty, which is not, not, uh, it's not, it's not magazine and cover. It's not glamour. It's not, glamour's a trick. Yeah. It's true beauty. And um, I think when I tune my lens to that, it's another way of plugging in. It's another way of seeing the, um, seeing the creativity, seeing the joy, seeing the, the beauty of my life. And that keeps me from going to the dark side. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wanted to ask, since you've uh, had the luck of doing a lot of like long runs in the theater, what are some things that you've learned about? What are the things that are hard, and what are the things that you've learned to have you get through doing the same story for a year or two years? Um. But to keep yourself feeling creative when maybe it feels like you're getting stuck or something. I think, uh, let's see, that's a really good question. I haven't done it, but I'm curious. Yeah. And I, I, I mean, and... It's a, different, it's a different set of skills. It is a different <laughs> set of skills. And, it, and it's actually, I think it is, unfortunately, it's one of the... It's one of the challenges of living in a capitalist society where um, we, aren't, we aren't well subsidized to the point where... It, it, especially if something is going to reach a broad audience on the stage, it, it needs to be popular. And if it is popular, it's not just true in theater. It happens in television. It happens in film franchises. You just keep going till you yeah. squeeze every dollar out. Now, that in and of itself is neither good nor, uh, nor bad. It, it, it falls to, the, to me as a a person working on a show like that to keep it alive. And uh, we, when we closed Fiddler, it'll be a year. Um, I did uh, Mary Poppins f- on and off for four years. And I will say this about that. My bosses at Disney Theatricals were awesome to me. They were really lovely in the sense that... Um, they allowed me to leave and recharge my batteries twice. They let me leave and go do Peter and the Starcatcher and come back. They let me leave and go do the first season of House of Cards and come back. That's um, and that's the upside of having a popular big show like that where they had in the pipeline enough guys who had played my role either on the tour or that they were able to, I was able to leave for three months and they were able to have someone step in and fill that role for me. Um, the downside of that is that it, 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 it can very easily start to become like just your job. Yeah. And, uh, and I have seen that happen um, in, in myself and in, in shows that I've seen. Um, I... I personally try to be very careful about that because I, I do, I, I do, um, <laughs> as much as I want to be light and joyful about it, I think I take what I do very, 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 very seriously. And I think of it as something that is inherently connected to my integrity as a human. So I. I can be sometimes humorless about screwing around on stage and the little things that are done and, you know. Yeah, and I, I do... So it's hard to get a gig like that, so you don't want to take it for granted. Yes, absolutely. I, I do think that the, the, the danger is that we always have a blind spot, and I think the joy of doing a role like that... Uh, I played George in, in Mary Poppins, and it was a wonderful script. It was written by Julian Fellows, um... Uh, you had the Sherman Brothers music. I, I got to meet uh, Dick Sherman and, and Dick Van Dyke, and it was just a wonderful, like, sort of like, just my childhood just washing over me again. But I also got to tell this story of um, a man who was overworked, uh, 
and not paying attention to his family. And at that time, I became a father during the course of the run of that play. So it, it had a profound effect on me. So I was very um, careful to tell that story honestly. The, the downside about doing it for that long for me was that sometimes I would get a little... <laughs> I would go down a road a little too far. That I, the great thing about playing a character on and off for four years is I got to sit with that guy and know him really, really well. And, and there were times where I could literally focus on one aspect of his personality and that would get me through a month. Um, I, I remember at a certain point, I, I really focused on him being incredibly distracted. Uh, just always thinking of something else. So I always sort of got to play with that idea of, I'm talking to you, but I'm worried about this. I'm talking to you. I remember I, I got carried through for months on this notion that, um, he, that George found Mary Poppins attractive and that it made him desperately uncomfortable. And so that was really fun to be able to play that for a while. Yeah. And it, and it wasn't, it, it didn't become the defining thing, but it gave me a place to put my attention so that I didn't wander. The danger in that is you can, uh, you can go too far in that and do the thing where I'm working hard instead of just showing up. Um, you're telling too much of a different story. Yeah. 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 They're like, who's that creepy old dude with the nanny? Um, but, uh, it, it was, it was wonderful, you know, it was wonderful to be able to do that. It's, uh, but it, it is tricky. It, yeah. it is very tricky to keep something like that alive. Um, um, I know we talked about this a little bit earlier with like reaching out to friends and things like that, but are there any other concrete things that you reach for? On a day where you're really feeling like you're in the dark place. Food, painkillers. Um, <laughs> no. Um, I, but I, I, it is funny. I, um, I do like I have, uh, I have like issues of addiction in my own life and I grew up with it. So I, I'm kind of hyper aware of that. Mm -hmm. And I try to, um, the things that I am... I try to push myself towards interests that are healthy right. because I, I know by now that I have an incredibly addictive personality. Yeah. My phone is the bane of my existence. My wife is constantly telling me, don't, don't bring it to bed. I fall asleep and, with it in my hand every night. <laughs> um, uh, you mentioned a couple of poets. Are there things I yeah I do you know I'm uh, I'm really into this guy John O'Donohue I find his language really dense he's almost like James Joyce um, if you get a chance you you have to listen to him he has um, he has some uh, um, audio books on iTunes oh, cool. and if you just Google his name in a, a, a an iTunes podcast search you'll find he's been on uh, on Being with Krista Tippett um, they I did it. Oh, I love it too. Oh man, she's amazing. She, that's that's when I go to. Um, but yeah, John O'Donohue. He's he's a uh, he has a beautiful voice, and it's much easier for me to understand him when he's speaking than when he writes. When he writes, uh, I feel like I I can just go over the same page again and again and again. And it is. It's like it's like reading Joyce. Um, well, with Irish writers, the Irish tradition is so based in. Yeah. Verbal story, like vocal story. Yes, absolutely. You know, I, I, when I was, um, when I came out of grad school, I, uh, I got a Fox fellowship and I went and studied storytelling in Ireland for three months. Oh my gosh. Um, and that idea, that notion of the oral tradition, the notion of repeating things three times, that there's a, there's like a magic to that. Mm. I mean, it's based in the Trinity, um, but it's also just smart storytelling. You say something three times, it's going to stick with people. And so why not make it a ritual? Why not make it a bing, bing, yeah. bing? No, um, it makes sense that you, um, you hear his poetry differently if he's saying it than if you're reading it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, that, I, I'm um, music. I'm, uh, I, I, wish I, I wish I read more. I mean, the truth is, it's the damn phone and, and, and kids that like, I, it's hard for me to go back to, uh, to, uh, commit myself to a book, but 
I'm trying to push myself towards uh, towards healthy interests. I um, I listen to uh, Krista Tippett. Um, I've been reading a lot of John O'Donohue. I'm very interested in uh, Stephen Fry. I think I, I mentioned him earlier. He uh, he has a, a a series of like audiobooks called English Delight, where he just sort of picks apart language. And I, I just think he's such a smart guy. And uh, and I also I, I I hear a lot of. I, I, I connect with him a lot because he's also, he's bipolar and he's dealt with depression and, um, but he's an incredibly intelligent, engaged, passionate, uh, human, um, uh, music. I, I love listening to when I'm really feeling scattered, <laughs> I listen to Bach because it's so mathematical <laughs> And I feel like it helps just put things into uh, into place yeah. for me. It's like I can rebuild myself a little bit with it. Um, um, I, also, I don't know if you've really had the chance to see anything recently since you're in a show, but I was going to see if you have anything to recommend. Or that's the question that I dreaded the most when you well, said that. It's understandable that you're yeah. a little busy at I ha I haven't seen well it's not just work too it's also that like uh, when we've had nights off and people will say come see this I get to see my kids so rarely that yeah. um I we we've been watching a lot of TV but I, I would say as far as theater the last thing that I saw that really knocked me out and it was it was like 3 years ago but it it kind of changed things for me and it it, it may sound a bit cliche um was I saw Sleep No More very, very early on. Yeah, me too. And the experience I had was so... Uh, I don't even know how to explain it. Because <laughs> um, I don't want to ruin it, for, ruin it for anybody who hasn't seen it. But basically what happened is I connected with one character the entire night. And she... I found her early on. She sent me away on a task I came back to her she sent me away for something else and so the whole three hour experience for me was my relationship to the character of Hecate oh, cool. and um, I'm not going to lie to you like I fell in love with that actress <laughs> like and it ended with this very intense one on one thing in a private room that that culminated without spoiling too much with her doing something that was uh, she picked me up and started laughing and spinning me around the room in this dark sort of Victorian room oh and then goodness. pushed me through a curtain that had a door like a, and pushed me out of the room and then the door closed and it was like it had never happened. It was like waking up from a dream. Oh um, and she had recited this... Uh, I don't want to go into too many details <laughs> if I haven't seen it, but like she recited this poetry to me and served me a cup of tea and it was so... It was such a perfect melding of watching a play and being in a play yeah and um i don't i don't think you're ruining anything because everyone's experience is different like, yeah i don't think i had any like one of those one-on-one -on -one rooms or anything when i went but i still had an amazing an amazing time yeah I, and i feel i've told people every time friends of mine come to the city i'm like if you like to look in someone's medicine cabinet when you go to their house <laughs> you're gonna love this play yeah. um but it, it, it changed things for me that, that I really feel like that is, in a weird way, it, it put a piece of the puzzle in for me. And I thought, that's what we're, we've all been trying to do for thousands of years, is have that kind of a connection. And I know there's been this proliferation of, of sort of uh, these immersive, immersive yeah. theater pieces. And some are amazing and some aren't. But, but I... I'm so excited for it. And, and uh, Marla, who you, you know, we was um, uh, one of the uh, dancers in our show in Finland. Yeah, she was in it. For a while. Yeah. yeah. And we talked a lot about, because I'm working on this uh, adaptation of Romeo and Juliet right now for uh, TACT, for the Actors Company Theater. And I was saying to her, I, I, I want that. I want that immersive theater. I don't necessarily want to do immersive theater, but how do you get that connection with an audience without 
having them walk through your room. How There's got to be a way to bring them closer. Well, I think an interesting thing about that particular show is also the anonymity that you're wearing these masks. Yeah. I think that changes it too. Oh, that's, that's a really good point. That's, um, yeah, because it, it frees us up to... Yeah. It is, theater is a communal experience, but it's also a singular experience. And, you know, when we were doing, uh, when we were working on Darwin, I kept saying, the thing we have to remember in writing this story is that most people who watch this are going to watch it alone, mm. which is very different than going to a movie theater or even watching TV. Yeah. Because when you hold it on your phone or on your iPad, there's not a lot of room for another person. We usually don't, I wouldn't include you in it unless I watched it first and said, this is amazing, Leah has to see it. And it's a very different thing to watch something on your own. You access a very different part of yourself. That's interesting. And that's that, the thing you just said about wearing those masks, that's fascinating to me. Because as an audience member in, a, in just a regular traditional play, you're in that sort of shadow space between. You get to be by yourself in a dark room, but you also are reassured by others. Um, and I don't know, I feel like maybe there's a continuum there where like, uh, Yeah, you're trying to marry the two. Yeah, and Marla said a very interesting thing. She said when you perform, when she performs as a dancer normally, it's about, um, extending yourself to your audience. But what they talk about at Punch Drunk is it's about inviting the audience to come to you. Mm. Which I thought is an interesting point of view. Well, and it makes them have to be active. Yeah. Too. Yeah, yeah. It does. You can't sit back. Yes, absolutely. I mean, you, you can, but then you spend, you'll spend your night going through the medicine cabinet. Yeah. So, um, mm. yeah. That's no, no, please. I'm sorry. I feel like I was kind of all over the map. No, this is wonderful. Yeah. Um, well, guys, go see Fiddler if you can before December. It's so good. Yeah. And, and go watch DarwinTheSeries.com. Darwin, okay, mm-hmm. great. Thank you. Thank you, Leah. listening to the compass podcast i'm leah walsh more episodes are coming soon please look for us on facebook and itunes i'd like to thank the following people for their generosity the compass cover art is by kim miller music by brendan spieth audio assistance from nick choksi and a special thanks to frankie j alvarez see you next time Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network.